You're listening to ZZ Talk, a father-son generational podcast where we talk about entertainment, culture, and a variety of other subjects from the perspectives of both Gen Z and Gen X. I'm Noah. I'm Greg. And this is ZZ Talk. Hello, hello, and welcome to today's show. Today, we're going to talk about books. Um, we're going to change things up a little bit. We've been talking about, um, oh, well, a lot of different topics as of late, and we thought that we would sort of share a little bit about what are some of our best reads over time. Now, I'm here to tell you that, um, well, I'll let Noah tell you why his, uh, most of his books in the last many years have been textbooks, but my books as of late have been, honestly, um, audiobooks. And I'm not a big fan of audiobooks. So the books that I'm going to talk about today uh, are the ones that I've actually read. Um, I enjoy reading. I don't get to do a whole lot of it. And I think that will be reflective in, reflected in what Noah and I both say. So with that, we're going to talk about some of our favorite books. Noah? Yeah. Um, books is an interesting thing because we've been talking about mainly visual media for a large majority of this podcast. And books have that sort of special power to let your imagination run wild. And I think in many ways, we've somewhat forgotten how to do that, or it's been mitigated with all of the visual things we see on screens today. And not to be um, not to be one of those uh, Luddites who is saying, you know, Technology is, technology is great. It truly is. But I think sometimes it's really important to uh, remember how much reading can actually give to you. And uh, I'll admit, I haven't read many books in the past five to seven years unless they're textbooks because, well, I was in school. And um, with the exception of one really good Stephen King book I read last Christmas that I got for the holiday, uh, it has probably been a good five years since I have done actual pleasure reading. But that doesn't discount the fact that I have some all-time favorites that uh, my dad and I are both going to share today. So uh, since you started the episode, do you want to go ahead and speak about your first top choice? Sure. So do you ever hear the term reading is fundamental? When I was a kid, that was a whole uh, campaign to get people to read and kids to read in particular. And I, I want to feel like it was McGruff, who was the dog, the mascot, and he mm -hmm drove around in a, on a bus or a truck and had lots of books. And, um, you know, I understand from a teacher friend of mine, shout out to Donna, that uh, the book fair is still really popular in, in school. So that's encouraging, even though the book fair includes pens and, and other goodies that are um, not quite books themselves. So <laughs> with that preamble, I'll say, I'm going to start with a book that I have long said is the scariest book I've ever read. Now, I want, to keep in, I want you to keep in mind that uh, these are some lightweight books, but they're fun books, books that I remember and books that I really enjoyed. And the scariest book I ever read was 1990s Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park. That's by Michael Creighton. Michael Creighton, the late Michael Creighton. And I, I'll just say this about that. You know, everyone has seen the movie. It's a really good movie. But the book was scary as anything. In my opinion, there were times when, uh, of course, it was 31 years ago. So again, all the visual distractions that we have now uh, didn't exist at that point in time. But I remember just reading about velociraptors and, and thinking, oh my gosh, that's terrifying. So most people would not say Jurassic Park is the scariest book they've ever read. Um, and I have read other scary books. But for me, Jurassic Park was a good read, a fun read, and a surprisingly tense read. So 
Well, I'm sure it's fantastic. Um, surprisingly, given how much that uh, I love the movie, I haven't read the book for myself. And that's kind of an issue I have. Once I've seen the movie, it's harder to read the book over. So I think that it's better to read first and then watch the movie. But I do want to ask one question. That. Yeah. Were you scared because you thought that you would see a velociraptor on your morning walk? Or is it just the thoughts of, uh, you know, dinosaurs eating people i i kind of want to know where that came from yeah no you know what it was i remember thinking as i was crossing the street Mm -hmm. of where i work so it's a street i crossed twice today um that what if a velociraptor came out i mean and i know that sounds ridiculous but that's the power of a really good book it gets your mind moving right and it gets you just thinking about what it is completely unrealistic i mean and let's face it jurassic park is completely unrealistic but the fact of the matter is is i was not expecting it to be to make such an impression on me. So when I wasn't reading it, I was thinking about it. And that's what makes for a really good, good storytelling. So um, that's, and let me just say this real quickly about the the movie. The movie's terrific. Oh yeah. Most books are far, well, the book is better. Uh, Most books are better than the movie, but I have to say the Jurassic Park films, even the more recent ones are really good. And they're not scary. The book is scary. Fair enough. Entertainment in its own right, uh, for all intents and purposes. All right, great. So I'm also going to go in the style of a book turned popular movie. And I'm going to say my first uh, top book is Life of Pi by Yann Martel. So Life of Pi, if you've seen the movie, it was directed by Ang Lee, who is also noted for his direction of 2003's The Incredible Hulk, uh, sort of took a different twist on this. Life of Pi is... um, it's a book about a boy who survives a boat crash with his family and all of his family is presumably killed. And uh, so he ends up on this small little lifeboat with a tiger named Richard Parker. And um, it, you know, this is one of those intensely original stories that doesn't really take uh, past tropes from other popular media. And it makes it into something that's wholly its own. One would think that somebody floating in the middle of the ocean uh, for months and months and months to years would be a pretty boring story. But no, I mean, this is one of those books that really gets your imaginative, like uh, creative side flowing. This is possibly the most visual sort of novel you could ever read because for myself, when I read it, um, I was about 14 years old in 2012. I I mean, it's just one of those things that you can picture just as vividly as the movie. But I will also say that the film is fantastic with its imagery as well and i would highly recommend reading the book first then watching the movie so uh life of pi um if you you have seen the movie it made 630 million dollars so you probably have um you should definitely read the book as well yeah that's a that's a great book and an even and and in my opinion an even better movie it's visually exceptional so good choice all right my next one is a book i read recently and it was a little bit controversial, but uh, it was a really good read. And I don't know why I picked it up, but I'm really glad I did. It's called American Dirt. Hmm. And um, so uh, American Dirt is, it tells the story of uh, Lydia Perez, a middle-class Mexican bookseller who flees Acapulco with her eight-year-old son, Luca, and is violently attacked by a drug cartel. That, as you can imagine, is not a book um, a topic that you would think that I would enjoy, but I thought the relationship between the mother and the son mm-hmm. and the idea 
that as a parent, I fully appreciate and understand and would replicate is that you will do anything for your children. And um, so for me, it was, a, it was a really good story. And I think there were some, there are certainly political overtones and regardless of where you land on the political spectrum, it's just a really well-told story. Um, so remember that Noah, parents yeah, will do you know. anything for their kids. And I like what you said about that, too, because uh, books such as that might not resonate uh, nearly enough with me at this point in my life, but maybe in 10, 15 years, I'll come to understand it as you have. It's something that you possibly can't relate to as you're younger, but, it, you know, these stories can take on heightened meaning for uh, anybody and at different courses and stages of their lives. So I, I think it's a really special thing about stories that are just well told. So the dirt, that's what's Ameri called. American dirt. American dirt. Cool. All right. Uh, my next book is uh, from my elementary school days. So I read this in fifth grade, and it is 1978's Sideways Stories from Wayside School by Lewis Satcher. So uh, Sideways Stories from Wayside School is just, it's just the coolest book. It's so imaginative, and um, it's something that doesn't feel like it was written in the late 70s. Um, so the story is that it takes place in a fictional wayside school, which is an institution that was meant to be built one story tall with 30 classrooms all in one row, but instead was built 30 stories tall with a single classroom on each floor, save for the non-existent 19th story. And of course, uh, this is a collection of, uh, there's a bunch of chapters which represent their own uh, contained stories. And then there's one on the 19th story that takes place that's super neat. So I, I, this is one of those books that isn't realistic per se. It's very much, you know, a fictional sort of children's book, but it often dives into sort of like the ethereal and the mysterious. And I really liked that about this one. Each character has a very vivid personality and I particularly appreciated how the students interacted with their teachers among one another and just the school's many quirky features and characters themselves. So. Sideways Stories from Wayside School is a fantastic book, and I'm sure it holds up even nearly 50 years later. Interesting. I'm not even familiar with that title, so I'm glad you shared it. It was developed into a Nickelodeon show at one point, so it's got some notoriety. Okay. Uh, my next one is by a very popular author, um, but it's not his most popular. Mine is um, uh, Digital Fortress by Dan Brown. Hmm. And Dan Brown is well known for having written uh, The Last Symbol, The Da Vinci Code, um, you know, a whole series uh, of, of books that people were just positively enamored by and with for uh, a lot of years, probably a decade to 15 years ago. But Digital Fortress was, I think, one of his first books. And what I liked so much about it, it came out in 1998. By the time I read it, it was well in the paperback. And it was the, it was the book that was it wasn't the Robert Langdon as the um, uh, protagonist. It was Susan Fletcher. She was a head cryptographer and she had to crack a code. And it was just really well-written, fun, a departure. That's not typically what I'm interested in reading about. Mm -hmm. um, but the setting and the characters were really vivid and I really appreciated it. So Digital Fortress by Dan Brown, uh, published in 1998. So the title sort of gives me uh, some sort of context clue that it might have been trying to predict what the future of technology might have been like. Am I correct in that uh, assumption? Probably so. I mean, the, the quick synopsis is when the U.S. National Security Agency's code-breaking machine, which is an acronym translator, encounters a new and complex code 
called Digital Fortress. It mm-hmm. simply couldn't, it can't be broken. So they, they, you know, they bring in their best to crack it. And, you know, it's been a lot of years since I read the book, but it's one of those that just has stayed with me, even though I've read all of his other books or most of his other books too, even those that were far more popular and made into films. Um, this one is, as I recall, has not been made into a film and hopefully it will not be. Yeah, um, I remember that you gave me uh, a book one year from Dan Brown. It was about, um, it was written for uh, young adults and teenagers. Um, it was like this sort of like mystery uh, teenager detective sort of story. And I didn't love uh, what I read, but I remember when I was about seven or eight years old, I picked up your copy of the Da Vinci Code that was under your bed and I started reading it because it had super, super brief chapters. So it was very easy to read. And I actually really liked it, even though, of course, I didn't understand a lot of the words and terminology, but it was fascinating in that way because I felt like I was an adult reading it. Um, I'll definitely have to check out uh, Dan Brown uh, if I end up starting to pick up reading as a more consistent hobby again. But I feel like it's one of those authors that I'm well aware of but haven't necessarily experienced fully yet. So Dan Brown, uh, yep. you've read a lot of his books, right? I have, I have. And, and they're all good, very entertaining, but honestly a bit repetitive. And that's what I liked about Digital Fortress. It seemed a little different than the others. Yeah, he's one of those pro- uh, prolific authors like Stephen King or Dean Koontz. Um, you know, all the, those ones that you always see on bookshelves, but you feel yeah. like they get read. So it's, right. yeah, it's kind of funny in that way. All right. So up next for me is probably going to be the most widely known book of the bunch, and that is Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. So I choose this one. It's the fourth in the series, and it came out in the year 2000. The film came out in 2006, I believe, maybe 2000. No, it was 2005. Um, But this is the pinnacle of the series, in my opinion. The imagination that just comes off the pages in this book is truly what made me love reading as a child and this one I think was like the first 600 plus page book and I I couldn't put it down Um, I remember getting the you were mentioning the scholastic book fair and they had a book order like a mail-in book sort of order thing and I remember I got uh, the complete series up to that time then and I just blasted through these books but this was the one that just really did it for me I remember after school, when y'all were working and I would go to after school, you know, there was people playing out on the playground. There was people in the gym. There was people doing whatever, talking to each other. I was sitting right there in that corner reading hundreds of pages of this book uh, because it talk, it delves into the Triwizard Tournament, which is a series of three very dangerous events that some of the best students participate in. And, um, you know, most people have probably read it or at least watched the movie. This is a sensational book. And just one of those... Uh, one of those rare young adult novels that truly lives up to the hype. You know, many people would say that a book of this caliber and notoriety is overrated. I think it exceeds uh, all of the expectation that was placed on it, has been placed on it, and might be placed on in the future. I think this is something that everyone should read in their lifetime. Well, you know, I'm the only person on the planet who could not get into the Harry Potter books. I read the first book and I've got this thing that a friend once said to me, if you can get through if you can get to page 100, you can finish the book. Well, I couldn't get to page 100. And I know how unusual that is. What I love so much about the fact that you commented on a Harry Potter book is that, of course, your mom would want me to say this. When mm-hmm. you were little, you would put multiple hard copy Harry Potter books in your backpack so that in case you finished one, you had another one to read. You loved them. 
They were all paperback. I remember that was the uh, caveat with uh, the premiums that they offered on the book order. And I the, remember. <laughs> the, final, the final one was, was hard copy. Yes, that's right. And we got it from a Borders, which probably closed the year after that. So In Atlanta. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah that was one of those uh things that we waited on so yeah. thank you for bearing with me on that one we never got that trip to six flags but i certainly yeah. got a trip through the final uh book of harry potter which is we great. didn't get the trip to six flags yet we'll get there yeah perhaps one day all right okay next up for me is a book i really loved i remember uh reading it vividly the hour i first believed by wally lamb so what's interesting about this book is it explores the aftermath of the Columbine tragedy, hmm. and it follows the lives of two fictional characters. Right. Um, one is an English teacher and his wife, um, who is the school nurse. And I find books that are based on uh, historical fact uh, infused with some fiction to be some of the most compelling. So for me, The Hour I First Believed, which was not the first Wally Lamb book that I've read, and there's another one coming on my list, but um, for me, this was a, was a classic read. I remember reading it while we were at Pump It Up. Yes, I remember you having it because, um, if I'm not mistaken, the front cover had a picture of a hand holding a candle yep. on it. You and are I good, you Noah. Said, I remember you said the book was very good, but it contained a little bit too much language for your liking. It did. Uh, it did. Yeah. Uh, but that one was massive. I remember looking, Huge. At, yeah. looking at how many pages it was. It had to be seven, 800 or so. Yeah, so it was a good one though. Yeah. Those types of books are not made for the attention span mm -hmm. of my generation. That's for sure. So I applaud anybody who can get through all of that at this point in time. All right. Um, so up next for me is a collection of short stories. Um, it's called Full Dark, No Stars. And it's by Stephen King, who is my far and away favorite author of all time. Um, and you can probably tell because we love movies. And of course, a lot of his books have been adapted into movies. And of course, we love horror as well. We talked about it all of last month. Um, so this book was uh, released in 2010. And it has four stories. Um, one is called 1922, which has a Netflix film with Thomas Hayden Church as the lead. And uh, there's also Big Driver, Fair Extension. And uh, the other one is called... Well... It's not listed here. I can't remember. Um, I think it's called A Good Marriage. Um, so just sort of a brief synopsis of all of them. They are just brutal. This is just one of those books where you just truly realize just how, how much power words have. You know, they often say the pen is mightier than the sword. And in many ways, like this book really like gets to you. It takes ordinary people from ordinary circumstances and then creates extraordinary situations out of them. Some of them are... Uh, most of them are very dark twinged and they have just a sort of like visceral gut feeling you get. I can't really describe it, but when I was reading this book, I just felt this overwhelming sense of dread almost. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, Noah, why is this one of your favorite books? I think it's just because it, uh, it has the power to evoke that emotion. It got that response from me and I've never, ever forgotten the first story, 1922. It's wild. And then, um, of course, Fair Extension is a story about um, subtle revenge in many ways. And I actually think you would really like that one. So I have my copy somewhere in the garage and you could probably read it if you wanted. But uh, this book is super intense. It's not for everybody, but I think it's probably Stephen King's strongest collection of short stories. 
truly fantastic book. I would recommend it to anybody who's a fan of his work or horror, dark, intriguing stories whatsoever. So yeah, full dark, cool. whoa, no stars. If you can find it in the garage, I'm, I'm up for it. Cool. Good luck. Good luck. All right. My next one is one that uh, you don't love. And it was published in 1861. Oh, no. Charles Dickens classic. Oh, no. Great expectations. You know, I, I am not someone who loves, you know, that old style of writing. But Great Expectations is a, is a book that surprised me. Largely because I think Miss Havisham is possibly one of the most memorable fictional characters ever been written, ever written. Um, so Great Expectations, uh, most people have read it or most people have tried to avoid reading it, but it is just a really, uh, as soon as we get through the marsh and all of that in the very beginning of the, of the book and um, the anonymous benefactor drops the, 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 the money on, on Pip, it just really takes off. And it's just a really good story with Estella and, and Pip and, and their story together. So um, for me, I, I, I have honestly not read much other, many of other, excuse me, many other books by Charles Dickens, but um, Great Expectations is my favorite, not A Christmas Carol. Oh my gosh. Is my favorite. Falling asleep already. So um, <laughs> let me, let me sort of set, uh, set the scene here. So uh, my dad told me that this was his favorite book of all time. So of course I had great expectations for this book. Haha. Ha. I see the what you did there. Be titled Unmet Expectations because it is just so painful to read through. And many people might be saying, oh, you know, you don't respect the classics, but this book is truly a product of its time. And it is. Uh, I agree. I'll give you that. My gosh, is it so boring? Um, so I unfortunately chose to read this um, because I had to choose a book for a book report. It had to be a classic. So I chose Great Expectations and Oh my God, I'm so glad SparkNotes exists because I um, I read about 150 to 200 pages of this and just, I, I could not will myself through it. It bored me to tears. And um, I, I think that's kind of funny. It's a difference of opinion because I figured that you would not enjoy this one. Um, but I'll say that Charles Dickens also did write A Tale of Two Cities, which was required reading uh, in ninth grade when I read Expectations and A Tale of Two Cities was far better. So, I have not read that. So good to know. Yeah. All right. Um, so up next for me is The Desperado Who Stole Baseball. So I, I read remember that one. I remember you reading that one. Oh, yeah. I love this one. So I read this in fifth grade, if I'm not mistaken, um, maybe sixth grade because it was 2010 when it came out. But of course, this is a marriage of some of my favorite things, uh, which is a Western setting and baseball. Uh, so the plot synopsis of this is uh, this is the exciting prequel to the best-selling The Boy Who Saved Baseball. The fate of a Wild West gold mining town rests in the hands of two individuals. One is a 12-year-old boy with a love and instinct for baseball unmatched by any grown-up. The other is the country's most infamous outlaw on the run and looking for peace of mind. Together, they pair up to prove that heroes can emerge from anywhere. So I thought this was just a sensational book because you know it's two of these like niche interests of mine that uh well baseball is an incredibly niche but I would say just the two combined is a pretty niche thing and it was just sort of a perfect storm of where I was in life you know I, I was at that point where I had been playing baseball for years and years and years and um 
of course, uh, you know, it, I loved reading at this time too. So it was just like a perfect marriage of um, an adventure-based book that I could probably liken to something like uh, The Goonies in terms of entertainment value. It isn't incredibly substantial, but it's something that was um, very affecting to me. And I remember it very fondly looking back. So The Desperado Who Stole Baseball by John H. Ritter. I remember you reading it. All right, I have one more, and this is probably my favorite book that I've ever read. Um, mm -hmm. I, I have some other honorable mentions too, but this is the one that uh, I, I think I'd like to go back and read it. You know, I can't watch a movie more than once generally. I can't really read a book more than once, but it's been 25 years, so it's probably time. And this is I Know This Much Is True by Wally Lamb. So indulge me for a second because here's the plot summary. Uh, takes place in Connecticut in mm -hmm. the early 90s. Right. I read it in 1998. Um, the main character, Dominic Birdsley, has an identical twin, Thomas, who suffers from paranoid schizophrenia. With medication, he's able to live in a relatively, a relatively peaceful life and work, but occasionally he has severe episodes of his illness. Um, thinking he is making a sacrificial protest that will stop the Gulf War, Thomas, the schizophrenic brother, cuts off his own hand while at a public library. Hmm. Um, these are identical twins and imagine the, the trauma, uh, and the self-doubt and the worry and the dread. If you have an identical twin who is a paranoid schizophrenic, I just thought it was a engrossing, um, read. And I will, I still think about this book probably on a monthly basis and it's, you know, been 25 years since I read it. So. I know this much is true, Wally Lamb, my favorite book, or my most memorable book, I would say. Yeah, definitely. And I think great stories can uh, especially uh, like sort of uh, bring about uh, the most memory because of how far they can be outside of our comfort zones. I think mm -hmm. reading about those things that we feel like we could never experience in life or um, something that's not too extraordinary, like a completely fictional book, but maybe something that might hit close to home, as in it's something that could feel real to you. Uh, yep. So I, I definitely think that books definitely have that power to touch on human interests, uh, problems of everyday life, but also somewhat extraordinary circumstances that can just seem real. Um, so I'll match you with uh, one other book recommendation. I will also do a repeat author. And this is Stephen King's The Institute. Um, <laughs> this one came out, I believe, in the past 10 years or so, but I got it for Christmas uh, from my mom. And um, she knows I love Stephen King um, and, you know, it was going to be one of those situations where she got me a nice gift, like a book. I would never read it. I'd say thank you. And then, you know, move on with my life. But I, for some taking all those books back that we got you for Christmas this year, <laughs> go ahead. Um, but, <laughs> but anyway, no, I actually uh, devoured this book. Uh, so the week after Christmas, um, I started reading the first 50 pages or so, and I was super intrigued. Um, it's about five, 600 pages or so, but I finished it uh, in seven days and I loved it. I loved every second of it because it just told this crazy tale, essentially of a child who was kidnapped and taken to this institute. And you don't know what this institute is here for, but they're treated very poorly, but he's gifted and the other children around him are gifted, but there's levels of giftedness that they have and they're treated by the staff and all these crazy, just like terrible, unimaginable ways. 
the staff are promising them certain outcomes that may or may not happen. So it's a lot of a mystery unraveling as you're reading about the characters' experiences. Um, and it's definitely one of King's best, um, in my opinion. So that's the Institute. Hmm. Well, cool. Good. So I believe that we have exhausted our book uh, options. Uh, well, I exhausted my five, but I've got some honorable mentions. I'm going to rapid fire through them here real quick. Cool. Uh, A Dog's Purpose, 2010 by Bruce Cameron. I know that's the ultimate in lightweight books, but I'm a dog lover and um, it just a, tells a really good story. Um, similarly, The Art of Racing in the Rain that one's by good. Garth Stein in 2018, made into a, a film uh, not as good as the book, made into a play that I saw in London, terrible. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and then The Great Gatsby, 1928. Yeah, that or, that's a classic. F. Scott Fitzgerald. No. Uh, I have not enjoyed or I've tried to stay clear of any of the film ad- adaptations because the book is so stellar. And lastly, and this is really the epitome of just uh, pop culture, Star Wars Heir to the Empire, 1991. Timothy Zahn is my favorite Star Wars author. And um, my friends Alan and Chris would agree. This is what, you know, in 1991, Star Wars was sort of, you know, uh, looked like it was in the past. Yeah, it was in It was in the past. And it really just uh, reinvigorated the entire series. And there were... He's, Timothy Zahn's written a number of Star Wars books and, and other books as well. But uh, for a fan of the original trilogy, because that's all we had had up to that point, um, the uh, heir to the Empire just sort of reignited, I think, general interest in Star Wars in a really positive and exciting way. Yeah. Um, well, with you saying that, that does remind me of another very odd but very good book that i read that was also in the star wars extended universe book and that one was called uh death troopers um that was a crazy crazy story and definitely one that i'm sure disney thought of first when they struck all the books from um the star wars official canon but uh essentially it deals with zombies on a uh imperial prison ship and two very well-known Star Wars characters come into the fray about halfway through. Really, really uh, good, really good book. I, I would say that many people probably haven't heard of it, especially if they're Star Wars fans, but I was super pleasantly surprised. A bit of a diamond in the rough. So Yeah, yeah. I, I like the sounds of it. Zombies and Star Wars, what a combination. Yeah, I read it at the height of zombie fame. Uh, it had to have been 2009 or 10 or so, but I was uh-huh. thinking about The Walking Dead because I watched the first two episodes on your um, iPod Nano, I believe. <laughs> the yeah, good old days. Yeah, back when a screen like that just didn't bother you. But yeah, all right. So uh, let's move on into our check it out section. What do you have? All right. So I got a film, naturally, and it's not a TV show, but it's one I actually watched last night. Uh, and I am pleased to say that I watched uh, Shang-Chi and the uh, Legend of the Ten Rings. Mm-hmm. It's a Marvel film. It, it's now free on Disney+. Plus. And um, I have to say, it's, it's pretty good. Now, it's two hours and 12 minutes, and we know what that means. It means I had to stop it like four times and get up and walk around kind of thing. But <laughs> hey, I, watched the, good. I watched the whole film in one night. You have to give me that. Your mom fell asleep, but uh, it was good. It's, it's quite good. In fact, I'm totally in for a sequel. You know, there are some battle scenes that just go on and on too long. 
but it's it uh, the the actors are appealing. It's well done. It's a somewhat original story. I don't know where in the world it fits. There was one reference to Iron Man in it, uh, but overall, it's really good. And some of the visuals are are pretty pretty impressive. So uh, Shang Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Check it out. You know, when you break a movie up into parts and you keep coming back to it, walking, revisiting it, it only makes the movie experience longer, right? I, I do know this, but <laughs> I can uh, I can enjoy the uh, the variety in my two hour and 12 minute experience, Fair which enough. turns into three hours. But I got it done and uh, I liked it. So, yeah, um, worth, worth check it out. Check it out. Noah. I know you're tired of Marvel, uh, which is blasphemous to Chris Davis. But I'm going to just say that uh, you should, I think you might enjoy it. I'm not over Marvel. I just, you know, don't feel incredibly uh, compelled to watch any of the newer ones right now. I'll probably see the new Spider-Man, but I skipped the second one. So that remains to be seen. didn't miss anything. Yeah, I thought so. But um, with you mentioning Shang-Chi and how good it was, I heard that this one was pretty excellent from across the board. So I'm pleased to hear that you liked it as well. And you are uh, quite the critic when it comes to some of these movies, especially superhero films. So um, uh, from my point of view, it sounds like it is a pretty darn good film from most of the people who have seen it. You'll have to see Dune. Um, That leaves nine days, by the way, nine days, by the way, PSA or eight days. It's going off soon. All right. So um, for my recommendation, this is going to be a bit of a departure from uh, my previous ones. It's not a piece of media, but it deals with media. Actually, it is a piece of media. I was incorrect in saying that. Um, But it is called justtherecipe.com. So if you go and look for recipes, you'll often find that there's a bunch of search engine optimization keywords Uh, that sort of fight to make the article the top one that you click on when you search for a specific food. And it will include a long drawn out story of somebody's family history of cooking this recipe, stuff you just don't want to read. You just want to see the directions, the delicious food pictures, and obviously just the prep time, all the extra details. So um, if you go to justtherecipe.com, all you need to do is uh, pull up the recipe that has all those bloated words and other stuff uh, in the article, copy the link, and then paste it in the Just the Recipe search bar. It'll filter out all of the extraneous information and give you just the recipe. So that's very useful. I used it to cook a blondie recipe last night, and I will say it was fantastic, and I really enjoyed it. The streamlined process of it all made it exceptionally uh, exceptionally nice. So justtherecipe.com. Sounds good. I got to check it out. Cool. All right. Well, thank you for listening to us talk about books this time. Um, we don't often go into printed media, if ever at all. So this was a nice little change of pace from what we usually do. But uh, do you have any closing thoughts? No, I mean, the Thanksgiving holiday is upon us next week. So uh, we may or may not be back with an episode that is uh, holiday themed. Great. All right. Sounds good. Well, until next week, I'm Noah. I'm Greg. And this is ZZ Talk. ZZ Talk. <laughs> All right. Yeah, we really need to fix that. From here, I can, it sounds like we're in sync. <laughs>